The Sobey Art Award is Canada's most prestigious contemporary art prize, bringing national and international attention to Canadian artists age 40 and under. Stephanie Kamalang was the winner for 2019, picking up the $100,000 top prize. Learn more about Stephanie and the four Sobey finalists in the two-part series, The New Masters on CBC Ideas. For more information about the award, visit www.gallery.ca slash Sobey. This is a CBC Original Podcast. I went through a period of mourning. Mourning our relationship, because it had forever changed. But also mourning boundless hope for his future. From CBC Original Podcasts, this is Love Me, a show about the messiness of human connection. I'm Lou. Today's episode, The Way We Were. A few years ago, I was in Iceland, And I went to a sweat lodge run by two Icelandic hippies. My friend took me there. She said the last time she was there, she saw Bjork. So when you arrive at this place, one of these beautiful Icelandic hippies would bring you down to a roaring, like an enormous bonfire. And then the other Icelandic hippie would come up to you and he would say, you're orange or you're blue. And then he would give you a pair of these Elton John sunglasses with lenses in the color that you were assigned. And I had on magenta sunglasses when I looked into the fire. It was like a bright, bright, bright pink. And the idea was just to get out of your head and see the world differently and just let everything go. But it felt kind of ridiculous. There were these bunnies hopping around everywhere, the Elton John glasses. It was odd. Anyway, so finally, we crawl into the sweat lodge. It's pitch black. There's like a dozen people lying in a circle around these rocks. They shut the doorway, and it's like very hot. The drum beat starts like a boom. And there's chanting. And... There was something about the music that I was just beaming. I was just so happy. I had this giant Cheshire Cat smile on my face. And then they opened the door and let the cool air in for a bit to give us a breather. And then in the next round, there's a different beat. And all of a sudden, I felt so turned on. My body was just tingling all over. And it was, you know, pitch black. So, you know. (laughs) And then they let the cool air in again. We get to breathe for a minute. And then we go into the third sweat. The music changes. I just start crying like a really ugly cry. A big, bawling, heaping weep. I was thinking about my mom, and I was thinking about not having a relationship with her, and probably not ever really having much of a relationship with her. And just, like, that feeling of emptiness, um... Realizing that, oh, that's just not something I get to have. 
in my life. And then the beats stop. And they open the little doorway. And they let the cool air in again. And afterwards, I asked my friend if she felt anything like that. And she said, uh, no. I don't know. Must have just been me. When I feel uh, distant from him, or like I can't find my little son that I remember, I think back to when he was a toddler. Oh, his brother was just a baby, so he must have been like two and a half. And the bane of my existence was trying to get them both down for a nap in the afternoon because I needed a nap. So I was in their bedroom that they shared, in the rocking chair, and I was trying to rock the baby. And I told my eldest to sit on the couch in the living room and watch cartoons or something. And just, you know, if you can't have a nap right now, just try to be quiet while I put your brother down. And so I'm rocking the baby and saying, come on, go to sleep and trying to be patient. And suddenly I heard this little plinking and it's my son on this terribly out of tune three string yellow plastic guitar and he peeks into the room and as he comes in I really he's singing this lullaby that I would always sing to them and he goes uh, lullaby lullaby baby fuss and baby cry you'll be sleeping by and by Where to start is, um, I think I'll start with the day that I found out. I went to the cash machine to pull out some cash because my youngest son wanted a haircut. And that's when I noticed that there's a large chunk of money missing. I'd been really busy. I hadn't actually checked my balance in a few weeks, but I just thought, okay, Obviously, something's going on with my account. You know, like sometimes, I don't know, banks make mistakes or I'd heard of people having money deposited in their account for no reason. So I figured there must be some explanation. When I checked my account again later that day, I saw that within a period of about two months, there'd been 35 withdrawals for the maximum amount of $500, for a total of $17,500. And I looked a little closer and I could see that all of the withdrawals had been done from the bank machine closest to my house. And 
that's when I knew who did it. I never thought I'd split up with my husband, ever. And I remember my youngest at one point, when things were tough, he said, are you and daddy going to get a divorce? And I said, no, never. Never say that to your children. <laughs> um, but I actually believed it. My husband has addiction problems, alcohol. Um, the family had been going through the roller coaster ride of my husband drinking, passing out, hurting himself or whatever, apologizing profusely, saying he'd never do it again, uh, being dry for a couple of weeks, and then going back up and down and, you know. And at one point, it got to the point where I said, okay, you know what, either you go into rehab or this is over. And we've been together for 18 years, so it took a, it took a lot to get to that point. And he chose to not go to rehab. So we split up. And for the first year, I had full custody. And the kids were fairly young. They were 9 and 11. Their dad had visitation. And I thought that'll give him a chance to get his stuff together. They're very close to their dad, though. And they felt that separation keenly. And whether my eldest acknowledged it or not, he blamed me for keeping them apart. He stopped going to school completely. He was progressively more and more anxious to the point where we'd had to go get help and um, he was diagnosed with a very vague general anxiety disorder. And from that point on, any anger he had, he directed towards me. He would call me names, and then call me worse names. And then he would throw things and trash his room. I remember there was this one point when he was, um, he was about 13, where he was saying to me over and over again, I don't want to hurt you. And sometimes he meant it as, I don't want to hurt you. And sometimes it was, I don't want to hurt you, as a threat. And he was repeating it over and over again in these different ways. And and I was scared, but at the same time, I just wanted to, like, grab him, like when he was two, and embrace him and hold him until it passed, you know? And then one day... When I, Because I was trying to do the parenting things. I was taking away, like, the Xbox. I was taking away the computer. I was taking anything of value, right? And the only thing left was my phone. And he was trying to wrestle my phone out of my hands. And he punched me. And I could feel in his swing that he, he changed his mind halfway through. And it didn't hurt. But it was clear enough as a gesture that I called the cops. I mean, the reason he was taking his anger out on me was because he knew I would love him regardless. He knew I would be there for him. And I didn't want him to learn that that's how you treat the women who love you. Um, so the cops came. 
but I didn't end up pressing charges. I just wanted him to stop. And I just said to him, okay, you're going to just live with your dad until we figure this out. As soon as he went to live with his dad, I was actually quite heartened because he made a point of like sending me Facebook messages and saying, you know, mom, I know we're going through a hard time, but I'd really like to see you. And we need to keep our relationship going, even if we're not living together. He'd say, you know, I'll come out of your house and I'll go buy you a coffee from your favorite coffee place or a croissant. We can have breakfast on the balcony. I'd just like to see you today. And occasionally I'd say, well, you know, why don't we just meet at a cafe instead of you coming all the way over here? It's not on your way. No, 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 no. I'll meet you at home. I just miss my home. And I found out later that every time he'd come to my house, he had actually found an excuse to leave briefly. And he'd managed to take my card out of my bag go to the bank machine around the corner, come back, put the card back without me noticing. When my husband and I split up, we sold the house and we just happened to have bought at the right place at the right time and made a good profit. So with my share, I did what I'd been wanting to do for a really long time, which was go to law school. And it was enough money that I could graduate with very little debt. I'd never been to university before. And when I started law school, it was what I'd hoped for and better. It allowed me to access parts of me that had never been accessed before. And it allowed me to realize or fulfill expectations that I'd always kind of had for myself, but never admitted. Like I thought I was smart, but <laughs> I never got to really test that out. And the joy of being challenged like that and of learning new things and learning how the world works and and a big part of what allowed me to enjoy that so much was not having to worry about money. Um, and I loved the fact that I was doing this on my own. So when the money, I was going to say when the money disappeared, but it didn't disappear when my son stole the money. It was the worst thing he could possibly have done to me in that moment because he was destroying the new life that I'd built for myself. And he was destroying my dream. And so when I finally discovered the money was missing, I knew I couldn't let it go this time. I went to the police and I did press charges. And I said, I want him to suffer the consequences of his actions. It 
So after I went to the cops, the police said they'd investigate. Then I went home. And later that night, my son came to my house to just pick something up before heading back to his dad's. And he said, hey, mom, how's it going? And I couldn't stand the look of innocence on his face. And I said, I know. I just want you to know that I know. And he left. And he disappeared for about a week and a half. And his dad was in a panic. And when my friends found out, they were all worried. And I wasn't. I didn't want to see him. Eventually, he ends up going back to his dad's place. And he's a mess. He's stoned out of his gourd and exhausted and belligerent and angry. And the police came and picked him up. That summer, before all this happened, he, he made a friend, which was a big deal because when he started having more and more problems with his anxiety, We'd placed him in a youth center where he could get, you know, 24-hour sort of behavioral therapy. And there was a school right on the campus, so he could go there. And um, all his old friends he'd known for his whole life had sort of abandoned him. They had no idea what he was going through, and he wasn't articulating it. And he was so lonely. So he'd made a friend this summer. And it turned out that this friend had convinced my son to steal the first $500. And my son did it. And he handed the money over to his friend, who just pocketed it. And occasionally this friend would buy my son some McDonald's or some weed. And then he asked him to get more money and more money again, and more money, and more money. And at a certain point, my son just stopped thinking about it. He would just hand over the money and then get stoned. And the more stoned he got, the less he thought about what he was doing and how it would affect me. was feeling a lot of pressure to just be a great mom and um, not press charges. But I wanted to really emphasize that this was a crime because I don't want him to hurt me again. The court ended up ordering a restorative justice process. It's supposed to give my son a chance to take responsibility for what he's done and find ways to try to make amends. So right now, we're in mediation. 
My son has agreed to try to pay some of the money back. So I told him, listen, on my last little contract that I did for a prof, I made $15 an hour. And I want him to feel what it's like to have to earn even a fraction of the amount of money he stole. Meanwhile, I'm taking out loans and I've been working to get my grades back up because they tanked last semester with all this. My son is living at the youth center again and it's been, it's been eight months and I still can't imagine him coming home. I can't actually imagine him ever being in my home again. I still visit him every week. I see him every week on Sunday afternoons. And to me, the entire visit, the one thing that makes it meaningful and worthwhile is the hug at the end. I hold him as close as I can. And he hugs me back. And we hug for a really long time. And he's about the same height as me now. And I can feel his strength, his man muscles. And at the same time, I can feel the little boy and that the fragility of the little boy in his breathing. And I love him. I love him very deeply. But trust is something completely different. And that's why physical touch is, it's just love. It's just plain old, plain, in that moment, love. We don't have to figure out what we're going to do or if he's ever going to come back home. He doesn't have to apologize. I don't have to be angry. He doesn't have to be guilty. We can just be together. Love Me is produced, edited, and mixed by Mira Burt-Wintonic and Crystal Duhame in Montreal. Original theme music by Tim Kingsbury. Tim is a member of Arcade Fire and Sam Patch. Check out Sam Patch's latest release, Yeah You and I, at sampatchmusic.com. Subscribe to the podcast at cbc.ca slash loveme or through your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please tell your friends about it. It would mean a lot to us. I'm Lou Olkowski. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.